Hello and welcome to the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast. My name's Stephen Dickens, I'm your co-host, and I'm joined as always by Jared Clee. Hey Jared, welcome to the show. Good morning Stephen, Merry Christmas. So we're recording this on the 23rd of December, in case you're not listening sort of in order or listening in time. Uh, and we decided to wear Christmas jumpers. For all of our audio listeners, this is going to be completely lost on you. For wait, those wait, you. Actually, in, in fact, I would suggest listening to it, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. Given <laughs> given our jumpers to, or sweaters, as I should say, now living in the US, um, you definitely want to be listen only and not watching us on YouTube. But in the, the this isn't a competitive element here. But, Jared, but if it was, I think you're winning, unfortunately. But, but, but we need to pause for just one second. Does your jumper flash and have lights built in? No, it doesn't. But, but Stephen, mine mine comes from a uh, from a uh, secondhand store here in Brooklyn. It looks to be probably 40, 50 years old. And some, I assume, grandmother took loving care and time to stitch on little plastic pearls and so on. And it's a vest, which I rather enjoy. But no, yeah, it so doesn't I decided, have flashing Rudolph noses. So I decided to go to the completely other end and wear a flashing sweater from Primark about two years ago that was obviously <laughs> made in some Chinese factory somewhere. So <laughs> the level of craftsmanship and attention to detail is very different here, I think. Well, it's it's the the, the love and care shines through. It, in yes, fact, it does. Blinks every about ten seconds. I'm going to turn the lights off just because they are distracting me, if not our, <laughs> our, our viewers. So we're on episode nine. I can't, still can't believe we've made it this far. Um, we're on episode nine of this podcast. If you're listening out of order, this is part two of a series that I'm trying to convince Jared needs to be three parts, but may well end up being two. On inflation. Last week's was where we calculated, the, the, really deep dug into how inflation was calculated. Jared did a really good job of explaining how the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is calculated and also in the newsletter covered some of the other mechanisms out there that are used to track inflation and give us some metrics. This podcast we're going to focus in on forecasting and, and before we get into it if you've read the newsletter in advance i've just got to ask one question jared did you ever invest in that coin flipping monkey <laughs> I, I tried apparently you cannot own a monkey in uh, new york city it's prohibited oh there's um, there's violence so against that, is that? The, the, the boonies with you there's bylaws against monkey ownership in New York City. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the um, only reason I don't have one yet. I, I learn something new every time we record this podcast, and that, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to pick up that bit of knowledge. But no, that's interesting. So I, I, I would have thought you would have had one and ordered it online via Amazon by now. I, you know, you can buy everything else there. So I was sort of shocked if, you if haven't you know, invested. If the listeners want to get me one, uh, just two days away, I will accept late Christmas presents. In addition to all the the the, uh, the problem tweets that I get, as you kindly suggest each week, if you want to send along a coin flipping monkey as part of that, gladly accept. And a video of you wrapping that coin flipping monkey, I think, is <laughs> a next viral hit. So, so guys, let's not goof around any further. Let's get into it. So, Jared, as I think it's worthwhile briefly in a couple of minutes summarizing last week to give us a frame 
to talk about this week. So if people are out of order or not listening to these kind of in sequence, inflation, calculation, where are we? Just give me sort of two minutes, if you would, on kind of that, and then we'll jump off into this week's newsletter and the rest of the show. So the summary from last week, it actually it builds on a, a letter from, from a couple of months ago. I did a, a short piece on the different types of inflation. So, so you have consumer price inflation, which is what we think of basically the stuff you purchase every day. That's what we call headline inflation. It's what you see talked about in the news and the like. But it's actually one of a couple different types of inflation. We, we could talk about monetary inflation, quite literally the creation of more money. We could talk about asset price inflation. So stuff you invest in, uh, your home prices of homes, uh, say stocks and bonds, and perhaps even commodities from, from an investment standpoint. CPI, consumer price uh, inflation, and, and CPI, consumer price index, again, is that headline inflation. And it's what we really feel on an everyday basis as you go to the grocery store and a, a gallon of milk costs more than it did yesterday, or you go to you go to the pub and, and a beer costs more than it did yesterday. That is very, very complex to calculate. So the headline number is calculated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it, the head of which, the commissioner of which um, is appointed by the president. So we can think of that as a, as a governmental organization. Of course, that comes along, Stephen, with all of the nuances of a governmental organization. There are massive incentives to reduce the published inflation rate, among the biggest of which are things uh, like your benefits, Social Security and the like, are indexed to inflation. If you can deflate those numbers, you don't have to pay out as much. Nonetheless, the actual calculation is wildly complex and it's reasonably robust. Um, if we walked through, there are thousands of people surveyed on a monthly and a quarterly basis. The methodology is well published, it's well reviewed. So we can take issues with it, but it is what I would generally call directionally correct. Okay, so good summary of kind of what we covered last week. Highly recommend you go at, back and check out episode eight. This week, you spent some time, and I've already taken us to coin flipping monkeys, but you spent some time talking about inflation forecasting and self-fulfilling prophecies. So just really frame that up, and then we'll use that as a, as a jumping off point into the rest of the show. So, so, so whereas last week talked about and walked through how we calculate inflation on a month-by-month -month basis, often what will then make the news is, well, where is inflation then going? And that is, there's an entire industry of professional forecasters who often you'll see them on TV and in a newspaper saying inflation is going to be this, this, this upcoming year. And these are the reasons why and so on. Um, that the two elements of that one is, are they ever right? Is there actually information there? Or is it just talking heads? And two, well, if I expect prices to go up next year, or I expect prices to go down next year. What does that mean? This is what we'll, and we'll get into what we call a complex adaptive system. If I expect prices to go up, I'm going to change my behavior. That will actually affect whether or not prices go up or down. That becomes a very, very difficult calculation. So we start breaking down, okay, how, how should we think about this and what are inflation expectations in the first place? So let's go to the forecasting first. 
I think I'd want a job as an inflation forecaster. You know, it sounds like the perfect job. I can make stuff up, make a prediction, never be held to account, it be wrong. And I just, as long as I could talk about it coherently on CNBC and all the various news channels, I think I could sort of keep going as an inflation. Stephen, I suggest you, you start writing a letter and then then perhaps build a podcast around it. I, I think I could probably pull that off somehow. <laughs> but no, I mean, all joking aside, I mean, we've joked about coin flipping monkeys, but that level of disparity that you highlight in the newsletter just was frankly astounding for me. I mean, I think getting this stuff wrong... I kind of expected because it's hard to predict, but the level of tolerance of how wrong it is was what surprised me. So well, maybe just if you've not read the, the data, I mean, the, the data here is, is damning. So the, on the first part, forecasts give us comfort. We think we know where we're going, but the hope is that there's some level of accuracy in those forecasts. The, the, uh, the Fed, um, a, a couple of folks at the at the Federal Reserve did a, a really nice study a couple of years ago. It measured inflation forecasts between 2005 and 2015, and it took a couple of different measures. Two of the measures were roll-ups of many different professional forecasters. So the stuff you'll see in the news, published in papers, et cetera. A third measure is what we would call market-determined measure. I ignoring the details of how it works, you can actually go and invest in instruments in the financial market that allow you to bet against or for inflation, effectively allowing you to hedge it. Um, the, the high level of the underlying mechanic here, you receive a fixed payment, at, rather, sorry, you pay a fixed payment and you receive a floating rate indexed to inflation or the reverse. Um, so allows you to take either side of that bet. The two other measures, there were five in total here, one was just betting that would be a constant 2%. Now, where does that number come from? The Federal Reserve has been targeting a 2% inflation rate for, for some number of years. There's nuance to that statement, but good enough for here. The, the fifth measure, which is my favorite, is just saying no change, meaning whatever it was last year, it's going to be the same this year. So five, five measures, Stephen. Two different forecast roll-ups, one market-based that you can actually go and invest in, one uh, that says flat 2%, and one that is just saying whatever it was before, it will keep it. Which is the most accurate? I mean, because those sound like wildly <laughs> different methodologies that are, you know, nuanced and market-based, based on data, you know, based on perception, and then just based on it's the same as it's going to be or it's just going to be flat. I mean, those sound like wildly different measures. If you are betting, what if you're trying to estimate inflation one year ahead, one year out, forecasters are marginally better, and I really do marginally better than just betting constant 2%. If you want to estimate two years out, betting a flat 2% is the best possible measure. And the second best measure is betting whatever it was last year. And, and Stephen, just to be clear, even those metrics, the average error was one and a half percent. I just want to be clear. The average inflation from 2005 to 2015 was 2.1%. The average error 
of the best forecast, which is just guessing 2%, was 1.5%. It's 75% of the magnitude of the actual inflation number. It's completely useless. So, as we joked, coin-flipping monkeys could get better than that. if you employed should a- own a coin-flipping monkey. Yeah, if you employed 100 coin-flipping monkeys to flip a coin, you'd probably get statistically better data. It's wild. It's wild to, to think that we have an entire so industry so- of forecasters getting paid however much they're getting paid to find out that flipping a coin is more effective. So, so, I mean, I'll strip all the joking out of side out of this and, and say these are obviously smart people. They probably went through college. They probably got economics degrees or postgraduate degrees. They probably work at fine institutions. You know, we, we can compare them to coin flipping monkeys all morning long, but they're obviously smart people. Why are they so wrong? The, the challenge here, Stephen, is is the very nature of the system they're trying to estimate. It's, it's a complex adaptive system. And, and what that means, that really has three elements to it. The, the first element is that you have a whole bunch of independent people making choices, what you would call in a, a formal model agents, because you can actually, you can model stuff that isn't people as well, like ants and other uh, types of organisms that work in colonies, uh, very effective for. So first you have, a whole bunch of independent people making independent decisions and critically based on their own wants and needs. Second thing that you have, those people interact with each other. So the decisions I make, Stephen, depend somewhat based on the decisions you make. We had to coordinate this morning when we were going to launch the podcast. We had to coordinate to dress poorly. Our decisions were in part dependent on one another. The third thing... I do love my jumper, by the way, so I don't describe <laughs> this as poorly, but I'm going to just let that one fly past. <laughs> let the listeners decide. Yeah, anybody who wants to comment on after they've seen this on YouTube on the flashing lights on my sweater, you know, go for it. But there you go. Please write to us at myeyesstillhurt at fatpailedthoughts.com. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so first thing, independent actors. Second thing, those actors interact with one another. Third thing, and this is really the critical one, those interactions affect the decisions that the individuals will make. So behavioral economics is a thing. People have studied the behavior of, you know, the, the group, if you want to call it that, the, the gang, the, the population. You can go out and do sentiment-based analysis. You could go out and survey a population of 3,000 people, whether they think inflation. I'm sure the forecasters have got access to that type of data. Why is that not finding its way into their forecasts? If that's the truest indicator, you know, go build a 10,000-person survey, go ask people what they think inflation is going to be next year, and then that's probably a better answer. So, so we do, Stephen. The, the challenge is Michigan uh, runs a study, the Fed, uh, uh, St. Louis actually runs a regular study to figure out inflation expectations. Federal Reserve incorporates this data into how they target inflation. Stephen, the challenge is that the very knowledge of what the inflation expectations are affect each and every one of our decisions. So let's take a a simple example here. If I think that inflation is going to go up by 5% next year, at a bare minimum, when I go in and ask for a raise this year to increase my salary, I'm going to ask for at least 5% just so I can stay level with where I am today. Well, 
If I ask for 5% today in expectation of 5% inflation next year, the business I work for, if everybody does that, also needs to increase their prices by 5%, all else equals, so that they keep making the same amount of money. Well, so is this a self today, Stephen, that, that, that starts to spiral. So is that the set definition of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Whatever I think inflation is, is going to be, I contribute my sort of perceptions to the wider perception pool, and then it becomes what I we in the aggregate think it's going to be, because if I think it's 10%, you think it's 5%, and all of us think it's going to be, on average, 8%, then we'll go take actions accordingly. Well, if we run businesses, if we set prices, you know, I, I, I have the pleasure of setting prices for the business I'm in, and we're having this discussion as we come to year end, you know, we're building in, building a hedge in. So I, I'm, I'm sort of leading to this overall perception becoming reality piece. Is that really the fundamental here that you're describing? It is, Stephen. And, and it's exactly as you described. It's the, the aggregate of many, many millions of individual decisions coming together. The challenge is without something exogenous, without an outside force otherwise affecting those expectations, that becomes a positive feedback loop. I think they're going up, therefore they go up. So I increase my expectations more to offset that. It keeps going. The challenge here is you need another force to derail that feedback loop. Historically, that's been what we would call hard currency. Now that's not perfect, but by hard currency, if I know that the money supply is limited by the amount of gold I can take out of the ground, I know that within some range, the amount of money isn't going to change. It might be, okay, we mint more gold this year, but that's two, 3%. It's not going to be a thousand percent. Now, I, I do want to hesitate here for a moment. There are plenty of ways of debasing a currency, even with hard currency. You can quite literally clip coins. You can do what Dionysus did. I believe it was fourth century Greece. Um, he passed a law that said all citizens must turn in their currency to the state. He took the coins. He took the, uh, the uh, I think they were diners at that time, diners, uh, the one the uh, one diner coin, stamped them as two and reissued them. So <laughs> to be clear. Coins with holes in the middle. That's exactly like. right. So anybody who follows me on Twitter knows I'm bordering on becoming a Bitcoin maximalist. Um. 90% of all Bitcoin have already been mined. We know programmatically when the last Bitcoin is going to be mined. We know exactly the distribution curve. We know there's only going to ever be 21 million. Are you saying the moving off the, the gold standard as we did in the 70s, we've had a floating fiat currency. We've printed, I tweeted this yesterday, it took us up until 2004, I think, 2003, to print the first $6 trillion of U.S. currency. We've printed the same amount in the last 20 months. So are you saying purely that inflation comes from M2 money supply and that we need to get control of that? Because I, I, I don't think you are. I not, know the, not, maxim no, not, I not think the maximalist in me would like to think that that's the only thing that we need to fix but i think it's wider than that 
It's it's much wider than that, Stephen. To to negate that is is foolhardy, but it's certainly not the only piece here. Um, I would also say before we get too far ahead, as I down the, the path of railing against fiat currency, there are really good reasons for moving off hard currency standards. If you look, for instance, at GDP growth before and after hard currency, if you look at business cycles and the steadiness of business cycles, meaning less bouncing up and down in volatility, it turns out that having control of your currency can be a phenomenally powerful tool to drive long-term steady growth. Now, that said, that same tool in the wrong hands can be wildly abused. And that's what we see on occasion globally. If And if you take a look at the letter, I compared uh, and I take this from uh, a book called This Time is Different by Reinhardt and Rogarf. Absolutely brilliant. Inflation before 1800, inflation after 1800. Stephen, before 1800, we have fairly low inflation long term, um, roughly about half a percent a year on average, or rather the median. If you look post 1800, the median is about two and a half percent. What's driving that number are countries like the U.S. that are targeting a 2% rate, but also countries like Greece and Zimbabwe and the like, who the only limitation to the existence of money there was how much ink and paper they had to feed into the printing machine. And so, that can be wildly destructive. So, so this is the interesting thing, and I've kind of formed this opinion. I think in well-developed, well-run stable countries a central bank owning the rights to be able to print the money printer is probably the right thing but when i say that sentence i'm probably talking about 20 or 30 countries i'm talking about the the dollar the pound the euro you, you know i'm talking about the the yen the the, the sort of the one i'm talking sort of big big currencies run stably whatever you think a monetary policy of china they run a stable country you know whatever you think of the dollar relatively stable i think from what el salvador's been doing that's the way i read and interpret their adoption of bitcoin as legal tender is we're not very good at this we're a country of three million having our own currency is probably not going to work for us Pegging it to the dollar probably also doesn't work for us. Hey, let's peg it to something outside of our control. So thoughts El, on that? El Salvador is a really interesting story, Stephen, and, and let's place it in a historical uh, context here. So you're right. M many countries probably should not have a central bank that can just print money at will. That said, sticking with a hard currency continues to have enormous downsides because you can't, you basically eliminate the ability to effectively use monetary policy to otherwise mitigate the fluctuations in business cycle, which may happen because of a crisis, miss something complete, a war may happen completely outside of your control. So the question is, how do you find a middle ground there? that allows you to continue to use effective monetary policy, but doesn't come with the drawbacks of hard currency. I think the thing for me is, and I'm talking very emerging nations, you know, parts of Africa, parts of Latin America, 
we see those as corrupt governments, you know, what's happening in Turkey, you know, with what they're playing around with monetary policy, actually reducing interest rates as inflation continues to skyrocket. I don't think there's a good answer in any of this. Yes, but is, is it the least bad answer to take the money printer control out of the hands of those central banks? It, it can be, Stephen. And what we've seen is over uh, since about 1960 or so, we've seen 85 countries, the formal term is dollarize. They've adopted the dollar as their national currency. That takes their hands off the steering wheel and turns it over to the uh, central bank of the U.S., the Federal Reserve. That does come with drawbacks. It certainly eliminates one of the biggest, which is having a corrupt government own a money printer. This, by the way, is what Zimbabwe did to finally move off their absurd inflation uh, through uh, the late 2010s era. The, a handful of countries, Stephen, have tried to then reverse that policy. Israel is actually a really interesting example here. Israel was dollarized for a while and wanted to move back off the shekel. I believe it was mid to late 80s. They successfully did it, but they were the exception to the rule. Only four out of 85 countries have ever successfully moved back off the dollar standard. It's a really challenging thing to do. Once you give up that control, the U.S., even if you have drawbacks of letting a third party control your monetary policy, the guarantees of fairly steady inflation, a strong currency, a central bank that's independent and making appropriate decisions as a result, the upside is so huge that it's very difficult to move back. Remember as well that you've got an entire generation that remembers having a central bank that royally abused them. So even if you try and replace that the, the corrupt country central bank with a new central bank that's competent, going to do the right things, independent, all of that, it's very difficult to reset the inflation expectations of your citizens. If they're used to being abused, they're going to expect to be abused. Come back to the complex adaptive system statement. If they expect inflation to go up, it's going to go up. They become self-fulfilling. That's a really, really challenging dynamic to undo. So those 85 countries... And I didn't know the number was that, so thank you for it. Do you see, now, my opinion is pegging yourself to another country has some challenges. Pegging yourself to an independent, open source, consensus-based approach in Bitcoin, do you see those 85 countries over time moving to the Bitcoin standard? Let, let's because this is my this is my thesis for where Bitcoin plays. We're going to have big Western and you know and put China into that group as well. We're going to have big, well-run currencies forever. The big five or six are going to be the big five or six. But I see a situation where the rest of the world, the smaller countries, the other, you know, what is it, hundred and fifty smaller countries that don't fall under those remits start to look to adopt Bitcoin as a standard for, for inter-country inter transfers. And we start to see that growing. El Salvador was obviously the first. Am I completely off base with my thesis? What's your view? Uh, we've not talked about this before, listeners. So I am genuinely don't know the answer I'm asking. 
um, to the question I'm asking here. So I'm interested in Jared's perspective. As excited and as interested as I am in Bitcoin, there's nothing novel about the idea of Bitcoin as money. Let's take the word Bitcoin out of it. What we're actually talking about, Stephen, is a hard currency, something that has a fixed known supply or rather a fixed inflation rate at this point. In this case, we know when inflation will end and then it will flatline. In fact, Bitcoin is somewhat deflationary because as people lose their wallets, they no longer have access to, to the Bitcoin that they thought they had that's permanently removed from the money supply. Stephen, we have <laughs> that quite literally thousands of years of history of hard currency regimes. We moved off them starting in the early 1900s, much more effectively post Bretton Woods, formally moved off uh, the, the gold standard and such. It's been a wild success. That's not to say there aren't bumps along the road, but in the right hands, it's been a wild, wild success. The track record and the story of countries that have dollarized, a handful have now euroized, which is a terrible word, has been wildly. I need to hear you say it just again for full of <laughs> euroized. It's been wildly successful, and the GDP numbers do not lie on this one. Year over year over year, decade over decade, you have generations that have now experienced growth unprecedented in human history. The idea that we would wind back the clock and go back and try hard currency again, given the successes we're having with well-managed fiat regimes, yeah, I just don't see it happening. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we're seeing El Salvador play this experiment in real time. I mean... Yes, you can still use the dollar in, in El Salvador, just for clarification. If anybody hasn't looked at that situation, they're kind of running two currencies in the country at the moment. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't think it's going to be long before the second country tries. I mean, if you're Again, some of these emerging okay. nations, it, it kind of makes sense as an experiment, right? So, I think. so we, we have to differentiate a couple different things here. The biggest of which... A country like El Salvador, by fiat, meaning the government itself said, you will accept Bitcoin. They said, you will take payments in Bitcoin. And for the big companies like McDonald's that have, uh, that have restaurants there or other, otherwise accepting payments, they have to get on board. For the everyday person, I don't care what the government tells me to do. If I want to accept dollars, I'm going to keep accepting dollars or a dollar peg currency. You simply cannot force somebody, for the most part, to change that approach. So even if the government, Stephen, wants to and makes a big press announcement about how they're doing so, the question is, does the everyday behavior of how a person goes out and buys their lunch or their hairdressers or pays for their school or what have you change? And at least to date, we haven't seen meaningful adoption in, in El Salvador. Admittingly, it's very, very early. But until we start seeing meaningful pickup in the local economy, I'd tell you they're still very much on the dollar standard. Yeah. Well, we've taken a bit of a detour here. We're 31 minutes in. I think start to summarize up. I'm going to still try and convince you to write a third newsletter on inflation. But let's use this as a point to summarize the last two podcasts, really kind of where we've gone with calculating the CPI where we've gone to this podcast with um, forecasting. 
So the summary from last week, Stephen, inflation, super different, difficult to calculate. We have a very robust way of calculating it, uh, the CPI that the government uh, runs and calculates. There are challenges with it, but it's directionally correct. How do we know that? Well, if we go look at other ways of calculating it, they all, within a fairly tight range, all point in the same direction. That's pretty good proof positive. We can haggle around the edges. Feel free to use a different estimate if you want. In terms of where inflation's going, forecasts are basically useless. I know that doesn't give anyone comfort at home, but you're not learning anything. You're not getting new data or insights from a forecast. You're getting a warm, fuzzy feeling that's not actually providing you new information. Hyperinflation, which you'll see headlined in the news, you'll see Jack Dorsey tweeting about it. For To be clear, hyperinflation is 40% inflation month over month. We just posted our highest inflation in close to 40 years in the in this country. It was 6.8% per year. So we're, I just want to clarify, that's less than 40%, right? It's less than 40% per year and slightly less than 40% per month. Okay, this, just wanted to... So if anybody's unsure, 40% is hyperinflation. We just posted 6.8 for the year. Hyperinflation, we are nowhere in the ballpark. In fact, as a country, we have never experienced hyperinflation. It was weird that Twitter didn't flag that tweet. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll remind them. Some fact checker didn't decide to put a disclaimer on that tweet, but hey. There we go. I suppose so, if you own the company, then you've got the ability to tweet whatever you want, really. Exactly. Well, not anymore. Well, but yeah. Well, it, I suppose he's no longer. The, he was still the CEO when he tweeted it, I suppose. But yeah, it's all it's it's semantics. But if so, so if you look at what hyperinflation is and the destruction it can wreak, it's very very real, and and that comes in two flavors, Stephen. That comes in the the actual uh, ruining of money. Basically, it becomes good for for papering the wall. But critically, it and we didn't introduce this term, but it, it de-anchors people's expectation, meaning if inflation has been really high for a while, I'm going to expect it to be high in the future. That becomes very, very difficult to reverse. And the challenge is that becomes self-fulfilling. If I expect it to be high, I'm going to do things like raise my prices or ask for more money in salary. That actually drives prices up in the aggregate. And that becomes very difficult to reverse. So a challenge for any central bank, which the U.S. has done a wonderful job with for years and years, is how do you not only manage the, the realized inflation, but how do you keep managing inflation expectations? So even when there are bumps in the road, you keep having people expect that it'll stay relatively level and even keeled. So... I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to say this and not ask for a response. I suppose one way would be to describe inflation as transitory. <laughs> so you've been listening to the Fat Tailed Thoughts podcast. I'm your co-host, Stephen Dickens. You've been listening to Jared and I. We love that you get on and give us a, a rating on your various podcast channel. If you can give us a five-star rating, that'd be great. Even better if you can give us a review. The complaints department, as always, is Cleabeard on twitter if you've got any positive um i run the i run the positive part of our department uh, at stephen dickens three all joking aside we'd love to hear from you we'll be back in the new year with more of these we're, we're planning on keeping going um you've been listening to the fat tailed thoughts podcast we'll see you again in 2022 thanks very much for your time and we'll speak to you soon <laughs>